1: Welcome to episode six of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangraphs in the Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and the revolving co-host chair spins its way to the Bronx this week, uh, and joining me is someone who I, I only know via Twitter, and I thought he was really good at Twitter. I reached out to him. I, I said, would you think about co-hosting with me? He was dumb enough to say yes, uh, but... Not a classical baseball media person, but he is, uh, has things we don't have. He's a three time Emmy Award winning director and editor. Uh, if you have watched the ESPN 30 for 30 series, he directed uh, the 8632 episode, which talked about Roy Jones Jr. getting totally screwed at the Olympics in Seoul in, in 1988. Uh, he directed the series premiere of Deer, featuring Spike Lee for Apple. Plus. Uh, did the Jackie Robinson spot for Major League Baseball, did the Pepsi Holiday Give Back Bodega action uh, that last winter. Uh, he's been a lead editor uh, of numerous Spike Lee joints, including the She's Gotta Have It reboot on Netflix, as well as Rodney King. Uh, currently developing his feature script, and he does uh, Yankees blogging over at 314feet.com. It's Randy Wilkins. Randy, how are you?
2: I'm well, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I I know I'm not the, uh, typical baseball voice, but I'm, I'm honored to be a part of the conversation.
1: I'm glad you could come on. And, and it's it's funny when you first talked, you said, I'm going to get some shit for coming on with the Astros guy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was like, uh, I don't know. I've I've really been, uh, looking forward to, to today to, to have a wide, uh, ranging conversation. But yeah, the, the first thing was like, uh Oh, Yankees fans are, uh, <laughs> going to give me the side eye, but it's, it's, I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> this is great.
1: Um, you are in the Bronx, you are a Yankees fan. Um, like, how do you, do you go to a lot of games? I know we talked to like right before we started, and even though you live in the Bronx, you are not close to Yankee stadium. It's not a convenient thing for you to go there. Um, but do you go to a lot of games? Do you, how do you, how do you, do the Yankee thing.
2: Yeah, I, I'm actually a long time season ticket holder. Oh, so like
1: like all 81 or like a package or? No, I have
2: a, I have a package. I'm not, uh, I'm not big time enough to have a full uh, package yet, (laughs) but, um, yeah, so I, I go to every Friday night game, uh, when there's like a, a regular season with regular capacity in the stadium. So, uh, I've had the package since 2004, which is obviously a, a year, uh, that many Yankees fans don't want to revisit, but that was my first year with the package. And, um, yeah, I go as, as many times as I can. It is inconvenient travel wise to get there from, from where I am in the Bronx, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very much engaged with the Yankees and I watch every game, every inning. I, I go to as many games as possible. So. Um, and having the blog too helps as well. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm the very online Yankees fan. So, <laughs> have,
1: have they got in touch with you yet about this year?
2: They have actually. I, I spoke to them yesterday. Oh, okay. Uh, so, what was yeah.
1: That? How'd
2: that go? I was pretty smooth. It made sense. Uh, they're, Basically they're doing the pie thing like everybody else Mm -hmm. and they're they're doing it in chunks. So the first eleven home games up until April twenty first is considered the first um first kind of batch of tickets that would be available and then after the twenty first they'll evaluate and then extend it if they if they're allowed to with the state, they'll extend it for another period of time. So they're doing it in batches at the beginning of the season. So it was very organized. They have specific packages in relation to the pods that they have and then they open it up to the general public i guess next week
1: are you are you are you gonna go
2: i'm not gonna go at the beginning so because they're doing it in chunks i'm allowed basically i paid for my package already so um they're giving credits for games that are are missed so that credit can transfer over to whenever i want to cash it in for this season so uh my girlfriend and I want to wait until we're fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. and then and then we'll get the tickets. I got my first shot uh, a couple of days ago, which I'm nice. very excited about. Yep. And uh I just want to make sure... We both want to make sure that we're fully vaccinated because that's part of the requirements. They mm-hmm. say either you have the negative test or you're, you show proof of full vaccination. So we just thought it'd be safer to go through that process first and then get the tickets afterwards.
1: Have you always been a Yankees fan?
2: Oh, yeah. The, the Yankees were the very first team that I followed when I was a kid. My mom would, when I was a baby, put me in front of the TV when a Yankees game was on, was on, and she'd walk away and I wouldn't move. Like, I was just totally entranced by the Yankees and baseball. Base, I love all sports. I follow pretty much every sport. Um, but baseball is at the top of the list by far. I played baseball and the Yankees are number one on my list. So.
1: And I- Yankees fans are, are a different breed. Um, yes. Are like, what's your, where are you right now? Because it feels Yankees fans, Um, I, we could get into it if you want to, but like are are frustrated that it's been a while since they won a World Series relative to the Yankees. Right. Um, Like, like what in general do you think their expectations are for this year? And do you think there's kind of a sense of frustration for their, you know, ability to get to the playoffs, but not, not go all the way?
2: Well, for this season, I'm definitely playing the role of arrogant Yankees fan. Like I I feel, (laughs) I, I try to be, I try to be balanced about it and rational about it. And I know that that is not common for the typical Yankees fan, but I try my best to, to be rational about things. But this year, just looking at how they've constructed the roster, the Mm -hmm. landscape of the American league, looking at the teams in the, in the East. I feel like if they stay healthy, which is, has always been the caveat with this core that I, I'm not totally sure who can compete with them if they're at full strength. Like obviously the last couple of years, it was Houston, Tampa Bay last year, the Red Sox for a certain period of time. But I, I just feel specifically for 2021, the, the biggest issue will be their health. And I know we're going to talk about injuries and, uh, preserving pitchers over the course of this season, but mm. it's it's obviously been an issue for the Yankees over the last couple of years. So holding my breath when I say this, but I, I feel pretty good about them uh, for this season. The last couple seasons, I don't know. It's been a roller coaster. I mean, there's obviously some things that happened uh, over the last couple of years, but I also feel that they could have done a little bit more to augment the, the roster to protect themselves from mm. – the health inconsistency and, um, I always felt like their rotation was a little short and that there were certain pieces on the, the position player side that were never really satisfied. Like I'm, I'm big on them having some kind of power threat from the lefty side, whether it's in the starting lineup or off the bench. And they never really seem to have that guy. Um, like a, you know, like a old school Daryl Strawberry guy or, <laughs> It's Chili Davis. Of all time. Yeah. I mean, it makes a difference. A Tim Raines, a Chili Davis, like that vet power lefty that can give you a pinch hit appearance that like can make an impact when you need it. Raul Ibanez. Yankees fans will always remember Raul Ibanez in, in a great light for what he did. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I love the team. I love what they've done, but I also feel like in the playoffs, sometimes they're, Roster shortcomings have popped up and their health is always impacted because it always feels like they're playing catch up when the playoffs start because somebody got hurt in September or yeah, somebody's yeah. coming back in September. So, um, did you,
1: did you go to playoff games in, in like the last few years?
2: Yeah, I have. I've been there. I was at the two wild card games that mm-hmm. they were in. Um, and I went to, I went to, oh, was, um, the 2017 ALDS, um, and yeah, those are I've, yeah. So I've been to a, a couple of them.
1: I gotta I, I tell you, like it, I, the only time I would travel with the Astros was during the postseason, and and just I would always tell people like, there's nothing like I know people, some people aren't thrilled with the new stadium, but like there's nothing, just environment wise, like Yankee Stadium. It was it was just, it's intimidating. Like it's louder than any stadium other stadium and that you know including any other playoff series or world series i went to it's you know everyone's up and screaming you know fat joe's on the big thing screaming come on like the base is is kind of vibrating the whole place and and your body and I, and i would just go like this we you know we can't match this there's nothing like this this is not <laughs> like you know it was like well we'll get loud in houston i'm like that's great it's not going to be like this like this, nah. is, this is this is literally intimidating this is amazing i, I thought it was great i loved it but uh, there's, you know, went to you know LA during 2017 for World Series was in Washington during 2019 for World Series, um, you know, playoff series in Cleveland, but like New York, it's literally 2x anywhere
2: else in terms right. of
1: just noise, energy, and and frankly intimidation.
2: So. So it's great to hear from your perspective because as fans, we like to feel like we have this big influence on the opponents when they come in and like everybody's going crazy in the building. but what exactly about it from an opponent's perspective makes it intimidating like and and why do you think it's it's louder there Is it the acoustics of the building the design know if it's of the, the building
1: acoustics or not? I do think there is a I mean there's an edge to Yankee fandom that I think serves them well. I think it's a good edge. Um, you know, it's not all happy, happy. It's, it's like, we don't, we genuinely don't like whoever we're playing, you right. know, it's and, and that's, that's, that edge is there. Um, I don't know if it's Yakuza or not, but it's definitely louder. And it's also, maybe it's just the PA is louder, but it's also, you know, look, I, you know, in, in Houston, they're playing, um, you know, deep in the heart of Texas and a lot of country stuff, you know, and LA is a little more mellow. Um, other places are me- are more mellow and-, and Yankee Stadium is playing. It's the only one like consistently bla- you know, blasting hip hop, first of all, um, which gives you and it gives them the, there's a base to that place that no one else has. Um, and I think that's a huge part of it. So let me ask you an uncomfortable question, if I can. Um, sure. So I had a friend of mine, someone uh, closely affiliated with the Yankees. Uh, once say how he was frustrated that the Yankees catered more to uh, a Manhattan crowd than a Bronx crowd. Um, mm. Do you do you see it that way? Do you think that's the case?
2: I, yes. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, I think that the old stadium, just in terms of accessibility price-wise, definitely made it easier for Local residents, meaning local borough residents, to be able to attend games. They were much cheaper, uh, relatively speaking, to the the prices at the new stadium. I think the actual construction of the, the stadium played an impact or played a role in it as well. And uh, the, the fancy seats in the new stadium mm-hmm. have this clear barrier that separates... Um, I guess, quote-unquote, the haves from the have-nots, uh-huh. in a way. Um, so I think that just in the actual design of the stadium, um, there's a, a privacy or, or a division between people who could access those closer seats and those who couldn't. Um, I think there are a lot of things I love about the new stadium. Like, I love the restaurant. The food is great. I actually yeah. really like the hall. Um, but I think that, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if it was – if it's necessarily Manhattan versus the Bronx, because I think that that if we're being honest, uh, has a, a connotation that there aren't affluent people in the Bronx, which is not true. And right. that the Bronx has a diversity that I, I don't think that it gets credit for, but I think it's more just, a an, an issue of affluence and who has access to certain places in the building because of that affluence. I don't necessarily think it's, manhattan versus the bronx and i I understand why your friend would describe it that way but as somebody that lives in the bronx and has been across many communities within the borough i i don't think it's fair to make it that delineation i just think it's a matter of affluence and access and it caters a little bit more to people who have that affluence than it did in the older stadium or the the second stadium Um, Do
1: do you think it's it's changed the makeup of the crowd like in the new stadium compared to the old?
2: I think for a regular season game it has, but for a playoff game, no. I mean, okay. I, I feel like the people that go to a playoff game are have that energy that you mentioned earlier, that they don't like you if you're not wearing a <laughs> Yankees uniform. Everybody at that point, whether you're uh, black, white, Latino, Asian, uh, sexual preference, if you're rich, poor, like, everybody's a Yankees fan during the playoffs, and we want to win. So, the whatever issues or um, divisions that are there during the regular season go out the window uh, when the playoffs come. Like, I was at the – I mentioned earlier, I was at the 2017 wild card game. Yeah. And when Didi hit that home run against the Twins, that was when I realized the stadium was back. Like, I, I remember those moments and that energy – in the old stadium and like people were losing their minds. And it was like, okay, I think, I think that energy is back now. And then it just lasted throughout 2017. So, um, I think it's true, but I think when you get to the playoffs, then that kind of goes out the window because everybody's there to see them win a championship.
1: Um, where are you on the whole Gary Sanchez thing? He seems to be a, uh, a, a guy who,
2: Yankees fans have strong opinions about. I love Gary. I'm definitely in the pro Gary camp. I think for whatever reason, I, I think that, I, well, I, I I think there are a couple reasons. reasons uh, and some of them don't relate always to baseball in my opinion, but mm-hmm. um, I think when it comes to Gary, there's because he was the first one of this new group to make an impact And to show his potential, I think because he hasn't been able to find that consistency for various reasons, he's kind of the poster boy for the frustration of this this unit or this core. So Gary came in 2016, and he almost single-handedly brought them into the playoffs when they had sold everybody off. Right. And in 2017, he had a really good year. 2018, he had a good year, but then he had injuries and kind of like tailed off. And then the criticism started to come. But I also think that came along with the perceived failures of the team and the expectations that this the Yankees were going to win a World Series by now. And Gary started getting hurt. And then he had a terrible 2020 and the inconsistencies. And I also think he's an easy target for coded language and perceptions and stereotypes and he can't defend himself because he's a Spanish speaking player. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are people in the baseball media who have unfairly targeted him and have leveraged stereotypes to justify whatever perceptions or descriptions they have of him. And I think that that's influenced how many Yankees fans perceive Gary. I mean, there there have been multiple articles. Um, a particular writer wrote a book that is filled with coded language that is clearly a demonstration of dislike for Gary that goes beyond just typical baseball criticism. Now when, you, so, when,
1: you, when you say coded language, like what?
2: Uh, Moody... Um, the whole like doesn't get along with his teammates thing, uh, questions about work ethic, definitely seen the like fat and lazy thing. Um, it's just like a, a bunch of phrases and words that seem to go towards Latino players only. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the questioning of work ethic. And whenever that comes up repeatedly, when there really isn't any evidence to show that, then I start wondering, well, what's the reason behind that? And it, it became consistent after a while. Um, and the, the whole stuff about being uh, brooding was another one. That was a big one for a while, that like Gary was just brooding. And it was like, he's not brooding. I mean, wh- where do you see this? Like, there's nobody else reports this. Um, it's never really a, a topic of... Um, conflict with anybody else but then there were like particular writers that would always paint him in that light and i i I know some of the yankees beat writers and they've never described him in that manner and and this is when they had access to the locker room so it makes me question um you know some people's motives when they describe him. and to be fair he had a terrible 2020 and there's been times when he's been really bad and like injuries have caught up to him and of course his defense like we all know about that yeah but he he works incredibly hard like part of the reason I think he had a bad twenty twenty was because the pandemic hit and when he came back, he was still in the middle of learning how to become a different type of defensive player you mm-hmm. know he he went through an overhaul of his mechanics and then the world stopped and then he had to like rush back in and try to figure it out so and he's a, he comes across as like a sensitive guy at least when it comes to his offensive performance. So I think it snowballed, and I think that that's one thing that he probably needs to improve upon is just putting those like bad experiences behind and like focusing on the next at bat, next game, and like looking for uh, good performance even when things might not be going great.
1: And I mean, as a Yankee fan, it's we're now you know more than three years removed. Like, what are your feelings about 2017?
2: Uh, they're they're complicated, and I think. I've thought about this obviously, and I think, for me, it, it, especially in the context of coming on and joining you, I think, I think a lot of uh, about 2020 and everything that happened in 2020 mm-hmm. um, in the world, and I wrote this Twitter thread last year that uh, went viral that talked about. Major League Baseball's response to George Floyd and being nine days late because they were more focused on uh, fighting with the players union. And I just expressed my displeasure. And because of that, I got a lot of attention and started talking to a lot of people in the game and then the league and people that worked for the league. And one thing that I've, I've learned through that experience and through those processes are really making sure that you get other people's perspectives before you arrive at a conclusion.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So for me, 2017 is incredibly disappointing. And I do as a Yankees fan feel like the Yankees were robbed. I feel like f- as a Yankees fan, especially for that team, because we fell in love with the 2017 team as a fan base because they were like our young guys. Right. So it was like, they were in our minds, could become the next core four, core five, you know, if you put Bernie in there. And it wasn't expected. So as the, the year was going on and you really started to buy in, there was like this romantic love affair with that team. And to lose in the ALCS the way that they did when they were up 3-2 and like winning all the games at home, but then for like some reason they couldn't win in Houston. And then a couple of years later to kind of confirm that like, it was weird that they couldn't win on on the road in Houston. I mean, it's, uh, it feels like we were robbed of a great experience. Like, I'm not – I'm obviously not a Yankees player. I don't work for the organization. So yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they have a different perspective on it. But for me, I felt like we were robbed of a great experience that would have been the cherry on top for a great year. Because as far as I'm concerned, I feel like the Yankees would have beat the Dodgers. So, getting past the Astros was like – Almost, and this is arrogant. I know it's going to come across that way, but I, I just no, felt like if all. they if they beat the Astros, they would have won the title. I know mm-hmm. Dodgers fans won't agree. No, but that's fine. We can we can debate that till like we're blue in the face. But for me, it felt like we were robbed of an experience, and it's something that I don't think I would ever get over when you when you look back on this team. Mm-hmm. And I think that in many ways is kinda set the course for this this core ever since and contributes to the frustration of Yankees fans. Because there's always a what if. Um so yeah, I mean I I I'm I am I don't really care for the Astros, to be quite honest. No, it's fine. um Yeah. I mean it's just for me, um it was an opportunity to see these young guys like reach the pinnacle and to be so far removed from it now and like not to to still not see them win a championship. It makes 2017 worse for me um, as a fan, and
1: and with the weirdness of 2020, I, I, you know, obviously the, the the Astros were getting ready to face some some understandably hostile away crowds. Um, once we get crowds in there, like how do you how do you think do you think it'll be as equally hostile a year later? I'm I don't
2: th- I don't think so, just because people sh- a lot. <laughs> right right I mean I, I just think that there's a general exhaustion but yeah. if I'm being honest I feel like they should
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I mean I feel like they I feel like they deserve to get hammered to be quite honest and I, I feel like th- the other thing to me that really bothers me is just the the arrogance of some of the the core players on the Astros throughout this entire thing and like the dismissiveness of it. And I mean, just to me, there was evidence not to say that they were the only team in the league that was doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, but like mm-hmm. we know that it happened and yeah. it's it's out there. There's evidence. And like Correa and uh, Bregman and some other guys just like leading the charge of, of being so defensive about it when it's, it's documented, it just like that just made it worse. And I, I just feel like. The fans deserve to just like let them know how they feel about that entire charade. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to, um, you know, give the canned apologies, but to go the extra step and act like, you know, you were the victim. Like, come on. Like, I don't know. I, I've, I've lost respect for some of those players beyond just like the actual, like scandal is it was more like the response to it. And all of that bothers me, and I, I think that the fans deserve, at some point, to like voice that that displeasure because it, it just compounded the issue. Um, so yeah. If, uh, if 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 next winter the, the
1: the Yankees signed Carlos Correa, would it be like okay, go Yankees? Would you?
2: Would it be mixed emotions? Like, how would you feel about something like that? I I wouldn't want Correa. I wouldn't want anything to do with him. He well, to say, me But what
1: if they did? Let's I mean let's, Oh, okay.
2: I mean I I I okay, so this also kinda I guess goes into another topic specific to the Yankees, like when it comes to Domingo Herman and Aroldis Chapman. Like mm-hmm, there are certain mm-hmm. there are certain people on their roster that I don't think should be on the team. Right. I think that they deserve to be employed, but I don't think they should be on the team that I follow. That's very selfish of me, but I mean I have for me, there's like a certain like moral standard that I feel like the team that I follow should always kind of try to execute or or mm-hmm. go through. But but that's me. I can't speak for the team. They have their feelings. I, I respect their decision. I just don't agree with it. So for Correa, if he's on the team, I mean, I wouldn't actively root for him. I would be rooting for the success of the team. And if he contributes to it, great. But I wouldn't actively go out of my way to cheer him on or. um necessarily point out his contributions. So I think when it comes to to players that I, I don't totally agree with being on their roster, it's more about making sure that I'm viewing it through the success of the team and the contributions of everyone involved and acknowledging that they might be a part of those contributions, but not actively being supportive of that specific player. And I would definitely put Correa in that group.
1: I mean, do you get excited when a
2: Chapman saves a game? No. <laughs> I don't actually know. Uh-huh. I, uh, when I'm at games, I know, like, people get up and cheer. I don't cheer. Um, I acknowledge him being in the game because I'm obviously watching it, but I don't actively cheer for a Chapman. I, I, if I'm cheering, it's because the Yankees won the game, but not because of, like, any part of his performance. Right. So.
1: Um, I mean, is there, is, is there a line where it gets to the point where you wouldn't root for the Yankees if they had enough of these players? Like, I'm, I'm like, at what point, I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself right, but is there a point where, and I think people have gotten, there are people who are like, I'm, I'm done with baseball, you know, or, or, or I'm done mm-hmm. with the Astros, or is there some sort of line where you'd be like, I, I, I can't do this if, if your team did a
2: certain thing? I think if, if there's like a really, I mean, I, it's tough because I feel like what Domingo Herman did was awful. Yeah. I don't think that there's any um, defense of that. So I can't really say. Well, if there was a really heinous act, I, I feel like that heinous act has already happened. Right. So I think if there were if there were more cases like that with the Yankees, then I would I would definitely consider it. But I trust that they also have a standard and wouldn't bring in so many guys like that. Right. Um, I, I I would like to believe that that would never happen with this team. But again, you never know. Life is weird. Like I never thought we would be living through a pandemic either. Um, but I I think it would, it would have to be that, you know, more and more roster spots were going to guys that just off the field were not a good representation of, of character. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, that's the thing about all of this stuff, at least for specific instances where, you know, and, and this includes somebody like Correa, where I feel like fans are put in this uncomfortable position that is lose lose. Yeah. And it's like, we had nothing to do with it. Like, do I choose the route for Carlos Correa? Because he's a Yankee, or do I like turn my back on him because of things that he did before he was a Yankee? And it's like, why am I in this position to make this decision in the first place? Yeah, like, no,
1: it, it, it's interesting. You said earlier that like you think they deserve to have a job, just maybe not with the Yankees. Obviously, the Astros went through this um, at the end of eighteen or at the end of nineteen right, with um, with Roberto Asuna, right. Um, who I said we shouldn't trade for. Period for anything, um, right? And someone said, Well, he deserves to work. I said, I, I, you know, I, whether you believe that or not, I wish we lived in a world where all 30 teams decided that he does, he is allowed to be hired, but none of them want him anyway. Right. Um, right. Should we get to a point like that, though? I mean, should we get to a point where, like, despite what Chapman or, or Herman have done, that we're just simply living in a world where teams, like, I don't want any part of that?
2: I, it's tough for me to say because I, I do believe that people are do have a right to employment you know it's, it's not mm-hmm. just like a, a baseball character thing or like a competitive integrity thing i mean it's also a labor thing i mean you know and then it gets it gets murky in my in my mind so i would just prefer that it not be the team that i've made an emotional and financial <laughs> investment in right. i mean that might be the that might be the better way to put it <laughs> like I'm very much invested in the Yankees. I love the Yankees. I've, you know, made a financial investment in them as a consumer. So for me, I think I'd prefer not be that team and let it be somebody else's problem. You know, let somebody else make that decision because I don't necessarily have like a connection or investment in that team. So I don't know. It's rough. I mean, the Osuna trade, like. I couldn't say much about the Osuna trade because the Yankees traded for Chapman and got him for 50 cents on the dollar, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it helped the team out in many ways. It got them Glaber Torres. He came back, you know, so again, it goes, it goes back to that weird position that fans are in and you're not really, you're not part of the decision-making process, but you're kind of bearing the burden of it along with the franchise. So yeah, I'm not really sure how you get, it is—it's it, not a win-win. It's not a win-lose. It's, it just feels lose-lose across the board, and you just kind of have to grit your teeth and move forward with it and just accept it because somebody else made that decision, and you have no influence or impact on it.
1: Well, on that, we will—we'll uh, both grit our teeth and move forward. You listen to a little bit of Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. We'll come back and talk about some other just to go. After. As soon as we stopped recording that first segment, you said you forgot to ask me something about 2017. I said, Let's record it, let's do it. So go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I'm 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 just generally curious how you feel about 2017 and how you feel about the championship and like everything that went down. I know you wrote the piece for fangrass, but mm-hmm. like how do you view twenty seventeen?
1: Um I think maybe the best way to put it is so I have a World Series ring, obviously. Mm-hmm. um and uh i wore it like i mm-hmm. think if you a lot of people put theirs away i'm like if you get one of these things i think you should wear it mm-hmm. um and i have a safe deposit box mm-hmm. and that ring is now in my safe deposit box and and i don't really picture any sort of scenario where i take it out mm. does that answer the question i mean I, it's, I, it's it's, it's it, there's anger and frustration and, and honestly like sadness mm-hmm. um but, yeah, I don't – I don't – I can't picture any sort of future where I put that ring back on my finger. I guess it would be the best way to put it.
2: Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that you – that you mentioned sadness because I, I, I feel like if Yankees fans were honest, I feel like that's part of the emotions too. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting – that we're feeling the same thing, but like from very different perspectives and experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just it's just sad the whole thing happened. It's just it just makes me sad. Um, just to have that thing tainted, it makes me sad for what it did to the game. It makes me sad um, to be associated with it at times. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it's it's I'm not. It hasn't been fun. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just. You know, like I said, like, I don't, I don't sit around telling people I worked for a world champion anymore, you know, I I just Mm -hmm. don't. And so I guess that shows you how I feel about it. It's not something that, you know, I want something to do with. And, you know, um, like when, so the Astros let me go at the end of October of last year. Mm -hmm. Um, it was an upsetting thing to have happen, obviously, but at the same time, um, there was a weight that I did not ask for that I was carrying around, mm-hmm. um, that is not there anymore, and that's a good thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's—I uh, uh, I guess that's the the best way to put. It. I know it's symbolic, but the best way to put it is like I don't wear the ring,
2: right? You know. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting you say that because from the perspective of a filmmaker. It's very much like a tragedy. Like it's tragic in many ways. Yeah. And I, for me, I remove like the main culprits from that. Like they're, like the people that were involved in it, I don't put them in the, like the tragedy category. I just think that they, you know, I, you know, I just, I think they're cheaters. So um, to hear from people that weren't directly involved, but were involved and were impacted by it. It, it feels like it's, it's much more complicated. And there's this, this just general sense of tragedy that I think some people, and I understand why, will never, won't acknowledge or, or, um, they'll just put you in the same group as like the players. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, again, going back to talking about 2020 and, and trying to, Look at things from multiple perspectives because coming across so many different people um, during that time, I try to try to give it like a a more like global view. And it's just really interesting to me that we're obviously on different sides of it, but like share that tragedy in a very specific way.
1: Yeah. And there's there's I mean, look, there's very personal stuff involved there. You know, I did get dragged into it for the wrong reason. um you know and i got death threats and other threats sometimes a little more disturbing than death threats and um and 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 there's anger there too like i if 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 the astros didn't cheat in 2017 and and like look they cheated in 2017 if the astros didn't cheat i'd still have a career in baseball and i am really Mm -hmm. i'm loving what i do right now don't get me wrong i'm having a blast Mm-hmm. But if the Astros didn't cheat, I'd still have a career in baseball and I'd still be on a path. And this is, I don't know, I maybe mean, this is ego driven, maybe it's not. I, I felt, and I had interviews for it too. Like I was on a path for, I was never going to be a GM, but I had an AGM path, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never, i no one's going to hire the weirdo in the corner with the earring and no Ivy League degree for a GM job. <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? Right. But I was—I had a path to an AGM. I had an AGM interview. I had some other people talking. There was talk about making me one in Houston. Even Um, Mm. like I was on a path for that. And it's all—if the Astros didn't cheat, at the very least, that path would still be there. You know, right? Um, Right. And I'd still have you know a a gig with the team and and all that stuff. It's it's so like there's personal anger there as well, for sure. Like, Mm. and, and and I'm not alone. There are plenty of people who have paid a price for this that had nothing to fucking do with it Mm. like you know it's i'm it's not just me i'm not saying poor me like there are a lot that's that's part of where part of the sadness comes from is there's a lot of people who have paid a price for something they didn't do because of what happened there are a Mm. lot of there this isn't this was not a victimless crime if you will right um you know, and there's a lot of people uh, in, in rough positions because of what happened who don't deserve it, and and that's that's upsetting to me personally.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I have one more question on this, and it's not necessarily about 2017, but yeah, uh, you made you made me think about this while you were uh, talking about other people in the organization and your path. How how did you feel about your overall experience in working with Houston? Because you know, you hear stories about the culture there yeah. and, you know, beyond 2017, just across the board. Like, how do you feel about your time in Houston in, in that context?
1: Um, like a lot of really, really mixed emotions. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of various things. I, there's a lot of things I, that I loved about it and there are things that I didn't. Um, I had a different experience than a lot of people, especially on the cultural side, because I didn't live in Houston. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to the office every day. I was spending most of my time, you know, either here in my house or traveling Mm -hmm. um, and running around and seeing draft guys or seeing pro guys or going to the Dominican a few times a year and seeing international guys. I was running around or going to our affiliates. Um, I was in Houston like once a week. And so there was a lot of cultural stuff that um, I still don't know. If I was turning a blind eye to it, or if it just like I wasn't there, so I wasn't seeing it that I didn't really find out maybe until later, until all the shit went down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the cultural stuff that gets accredited to Houston definitely was happening in Houston, but also happens in most teams. Mm-hmm. I think I think most front offices have cultural issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think the the ugliness of of Houston was just kind of always the, um, I guess the term I'd use is ruthless efficiency of it all. Hmm. Um. But I think we've seen, I think we've seen that ruthless efficiency spread across all sports in some ways. Um, I agree. You know, and not I just agree. with not just with how you know players are seen as assets, um, but in terms of how people are treated as well, um, who are not the players. Uh, and so, um, there were things I I maybe turned a blind eye to because I was getting paid well to run around and watch baseball, and holy shit, isn't that great? right you know um so yeah it's it's mixed emotions like i'm not gonna act like the whole thing was a horrible experience i had a lot of fun you know many many times um mm-hmm. there are a lot of things i loved about it but there were bothersome things about it as well for
2: sure mm-hmm. that, that i that I lived with because the highs were so high right yeah and it's interesting that you you talk about this kind of like uh removal of humanity i guess it, it, I guess that's like a dramatic phrase, but I can't really think of a better that's, way to put it at the moment. But
1: pretty accurate, yeah,
2: yeah. And it and it feels from the fan side that that's influenced the way a lot of fans perceive and consume the game now, and I I I find that bothersome from my perspective, and you know just, a lot just of in how
1: like players are just like even the the language. You go back to like we talked in the first segment about language, just like. I'm never comfortable with players being talked about as assets. Right. Agree. You know, um, right. these are these are human beings and and, and this matters to them. And, and I can say from, you know, getting close up and seeing stuff like any sort of weird narrative about these are spoiled millionaires who don't care. They are millionaires and, and, and they have all the weird quirks that millionaires have, but they really do care. Like those like they play hard. They want to win. And like this. Right. You know, this concept of that has always been a weird one to me, but they also are are human beings. And, 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 yeah, the, the, the world of of players as assets has really come, you know, really over maybe the last two decades or so. Right. Um, And, and front offices have become, I think the average fan can name more GMs today than they could have 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the front offices have, have been something getting more attention. And it's just this weird celebration of of quote unquote smart business as opposed to winning, which is why kind of the worship of the Rays has always bothered me. Um, yeah, and I, I, Boy, I, look, <laughs> I, I think the Rays are super smart, and the way they do things are super, and 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 with their limitations, and and I think their player evaluation and the way they go about that is really great, and all that kind of stuff. But like this this worshipping them for like their wins per dollar ratio, I have no interest in that whatsoever.
2: I, I just want to be on the record and say that the Rays bother me, period. Yeah. <laughs> I, as, a, as a Yankees fan, I, I have to make sure that that's out there so I represent for the Yankees <laughs> fans. Um, everything about the Rays bothers me. Uh, how they get praised, how they have a banner for everything. Um, yeah, I I, I just had to make sure that that was
1: <laughs> part of the,
2: part of the I pod. Will not
1: edit that out?
2: Please, please don't. I, I want to be. I want to be on record about the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, that yeah, I, I'm not I'm not a fan.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that, that, that's the thing, and that's and I think that's a newer thing. Like I don't you know, uh, obviously before we had free agency, so before the early '70s, like no one talked about payroll. Um, salaries were rarely discussed. Um, with free agency, payroll or salaries got discussed more than payroll, and all of a sudden like payroll and efficiency has become this big thing. Um, and I think it's all, I, I think like ownership and teams push that in a way. I think it's good for them if fans are obsessed with that because it allows them to be cheaper when they don't have to be. Right. Totally. You know what and, I mean? And, uh-huh. um, and, I'm talking to a Yankee fan. So it's not as much with, with the Yankees, obviously, but, um, like there are no, like the con, even if it's just a concept of small market team is offensive to me. Yeah, it's bullshit. And it's just like, I've said this, I, I think I've said this every episode now. I'm going to say it to you again. <laughs> um, before I got a job in baseball, I would say owning a baseball team is a license to print money. Mm-hmm. And nothing from my eight years inside the game changed that notion one iota. Yeah. Right. It's just, it's a license to print money. And every time a team says we got to save it is they're, they're just, they're, they're saving they're, they're they're not necessarily saving as much as they're just simply improving their bottom line and there's a huge difference there you know mm-hmm. um it, it's it's not a it, they're they're increasing their profits they're not cutting their losses you know right. and that's that's the thing and that they, they lost profits they didn't lose money and um you know even for the teams that you know on a spreadsheet lost money and when you're talking about billion dollar businesses you can do anything on a spreadsheet to make it look like you lost money um it's more about like if you take a long-term view yes some teams lost money last year by nearly any measurement but if you take a long-term view over the last decade in terms of actual profit uh increased franchise value all those sorts of things they're making money hand over fist yeah so um i guess i think that's the that's the interesting thing to me is just like where we've gone with this this player's assets and ruthless efficiency as far as roster management and payroll management goes where like I think owners are, are thrilled that that's what fans are obsessed with because
2: they can do these kind of things and people can go, oh, good move. Right. And it's, it's interesting, too, because I, I, the flip side of it is it's made baseball more accessible for fans. You know, it's, it's created this uh, environment where fans can be more engaged in, and there's more interaction, I guess, with the overall um, roster construction and mm-hmm. like f- – not fantasy, and I don't mean that it, it's fantasy, but I don't mean that in a demeaning way or degrading way. It's just a general descriptor. But a lot of fans are way more engaged, I think, on the cerebral side of baseball that isn't even connected to the on-field performance. Or if it is a, if there is a discussion about on-field performances in the context of roster construction and payroll. Mm. So, and and I think that there are a lot of people that enjoy that side of it because they're not necessarily professional athletes or like had great athletic careers coming up when they were younger, but this is a way for them to like really um be engaged with the game in a way that they might not be able to physically. And I think in talking to fans and discussing the game with fans and decisions and things of things along those lines, it always feels like that access is, it's what's driving their fandom now. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's good. And I also think that that's bad because the idea of like competitive integrity kind of gets pushed to the side at times. I believe. And that, yeah, I, I just think
1: if you, if you're a fan, I, I, I think you should just want your team to put the best product on the field as opposed to, well, look how much we're doing with a limited payroll. How about you just put the best product on the field? You know, how right? You exactly. Team? Exactly. Shouldn't you be mad your team's not spending more as opposed to how well they're, they're dealing with a limited payroll and, um, the other thing is like I, I do think fans when you get mad at your at your favorite team's front office about not spending more get mad at your owner because that's the guy telling
2: you how much they, that's the guy telling them how much they can they can or can't spend, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean as a Yankees fan, I don't I try not to complain too much because I mean <laughs> yeah, they spend. They spend. I mean yeah, and, but they and can that's they spend the...
1: double what they do and and make right. like, a huge profit, you know.
2: Right. Right. I'm, I'm sure
1: they're I'm sure they're told not to. Oh,
2: I'm I'm sure they are too. <laughs> Yeah, I and but but they do spend, and I I feel like some Yankees fans get the two things confused. Like, not every team is spending three hundred plus million dollars on a pitcher. Mm-hmm. You know, the Yankees did, so I don't. I feel like they're aggressive and they they work within their mandates, but they're aggressive within their mandates. You know. Yeah, I um, mean,
1: and the the whole thing was a perfect situation. It was like you know one of the best free agents ever. Uh, pitchers ever at the time, based on, you know, his age and what he was coming off of. He wanted to be a Yankee and the Yankees wanted him. Like, it was just right. a perfect storm. Like, that was going to happen. It could have, you know, the second he became a free agent, I could have told you he was going to end up a Yankee. And I think, right. you know, and I was one of millions who would have said the same thing. Right. Um, but, right. but, but, but if he wanted to be a Royal, it wouldn't have happened. You no. know, if you, if, you <laughs> if he was from Kansas City and I wanted to be a Royal, there's no way he would have gotten enough money to do that, you know? And, and I think that, Kind of speaks to to, you know, like you said. At least the Yankees, they spend, but like, they like they, they 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 make their runs at guys, you know. Right. Another team's totally. are just like, yeah, I'm not touching that. And, and you know, with any sort of elite free agent, it always feels like the number of teams in play for them, You only need one hand to count because that's how many teams are willing to write nine figure checks. Right. You know, and that shouldn't be the case necessarily. Um, which is why it's kind of refreshing to see what the Padres have done. Yeah. You know, yeah. I said, you know, screw the small market thing. We can send this guy for $300 million. We're going to go get him.
2: Yeah, it's great. I, I'm all in on the Padres. I love what they've done. Just <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Just do something different. <laughs> so uh, it, it's uh, we're recording this on Thursday, March 25th. One
1: week from now, we're going to have real baseball. And um, the last week was not especially newsworthy uh, in terms of any sort of moves, obviously, as we, we're in the Groundhog Day section of, of spring training. But it's gotten a little disturbing on the injury front. Um, so, you know, obviously Yates needs a TJ. Uh, the ace of the Diamondbacks, Zach Gallons banged up. Kyle Freeland with the Rockies has a shoulder. Um, you know, George Springer has an oblique. We just found out like an hour ago that Eloy Jimenez might miss the whole year uh, with, with a torn pectoral muscle. Um, like two weeks ago, I was talking to a GM and I was talking to them about their pitching. And, and, and I was saying, you know, how are you going to handle this? Like, you know, we, we're just coming off of 60 games that were very weird. And, and there were some, some kind of injuries there that maybe more than we expected. And guys, guys, you know, shut down in spring, then really didn't get ready and then had a season. And now they didn't have a whole season. They had a weird off season. Now here we go. Like, how are you going to handle pitching? And he just kind of paused for ten seconds, and he said, "I'm going to be honest with you. We're terrified. Hmm. And like, is is that going to be the story? I think the story of 2021, and, and it could, and it's going to have a huge impact on, on the standings. Is just is just health. Like, I think we're going to have way more of this kind of thing going on, um, because players' bodies did something that was well out of their routine. And I, I think the shutdown last year and the restart really." is going to was a problem last year but i think that problem is not gone away i think that it's, it's actually going to to almost multiply this year and, I, and and we're we're already seeing it i don't think this is a blip i don't think this is a weird run of injuries i think we're going to have a lot of real problems this year as far as just keeping guys on the field um and obviously that's been a problem for the yankees up late but like i this is, i think this is going to be every team i think it's
2: going to be a, this is going to be the story of the season in my mind it's just player health I agree, and we were just talking about the Padres, and I think that's one reason why I loved what they did in the winter, because there was a clear emphasis on just building depth. And the way that they were to acquire they were the way that they were able to acquire so many strong pieces while maintaining their high level prospect depth, I think is gonna be really important and I and I feel like it's been um an under Sold aspect of their off season because I I'm, I'm with you. I mean this is basically going to be a story about survival of the fittest. Yeah, and whoever
1: war of attrition.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's always true with every season, but it's going to be especially true for this one. And I think the teams that were really aggressive in building up really good depth to cover for these things, and also to give players more rest and and a larger emphasis on load management are probably the teams that are going to put themselves in the best position to succeed and be successful by the end of the season. So I feel like the Dodgers did that as well. The Yankees did it. The Padres did it. A couple other teams tried to do that. I'm, I'm not sure like if they were successful as those three teams. But to me, that the, the, the offseason was really about acquiring depth. And that, that's something that personally I think is always important. Um, I, and that's something that I've, I've banged that drum about the Yankees specifically for a while, but I think that it's especially true across the board in the, across the entire league. And a team like the Padres really addressed it well, the Dodgers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. That, that Jimenez injury, kind of like a freak injury. Yeah. I it's, it's heartbreaking though, cause it's like, heartbreaking. It's yeah. fun to watch. Right. And I feel like, um, the White Sox, could have done more to address their outfield depth, and they didn't do it. And yes, they so lost. Eden. It's real
1: scary. All of a sudden,
2: yeah, it's because they also lost um, their fourth outfielder too, right?
1: And and like all of a sudden, like you're talking about Adam Engel and, and Lurie Garcia, right. who are not guys you want to play every day if you're going to try to compete for a division.
2: Right. Right. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Angle get hurt during the spring as well? He did.
1: Yeah. And it's it's it's, it's and you know they're, now they're talking about playing. Uh, Andrew Vaughn, their top prospect in left field th- over this next week or so. Right. Um, and they think Vaughn's bat is ready for the big leagues, but I, that's a, that's a tough ask. Like just even for a really good hitting prospect to say, Hey, we're going to put you in the big leagues and, and we're going to throw you into the fire and you have to make those adjustments, which can, you can only make if you're in the big leagues. But while you're at it, can you also learn a new position? Right. <laughs> that's right. tough, man. But yeah, I mean, to go back to the Padres, it's like people were, you know, you know they, they, they signed, um, uh, the Korean player, song Kim, they signed jerks and Profar. People were like, where are you going to play these guys? And like, they're going to find three, 400 plate appearances for these guys. I, and you know, you used the term load management. I, I think that term kind of gained traction more in the NBA over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wonder how much we're going to see that in the sense that I've talked to teams that like really think they're going to do they're looking into how they want to do load management and are there positions where you're going to like take a starting pitcher and say hey great first 12 starts it's July we're gonna skip your next two right uh, you know and things like that and I think you know that's not something we've seen before but I think that's something we'll start to see this year as opposed to just yeah, a little off day here because he's a little banged up it's like very specific off day or at times even off days like we are going to he's totally fine. Like there's no injury here. We're just not going to play him for a couple of days, right? Or we're, we're going to skip a couple starts.
2: And I know a bunch of fan bases have talked about ways for their their teams to construct a six man rotation. And I don't think we're going to see that across the board. But I do think they're going to teams are going to go into their stash of of starters and. Just like you said, like just pop up for a couple of starts to give their one of their top five guys a breather and then either send that guy back down and then put their one of their top guys back in there. I just feel like the way that teams have envisioned their rotations will be drastically different mm-hmm. than we've seen before. And I don't, I don't think that the intent is to make it a regular thing, but it's again, it's, it's the load management process. To make sure that by the time the end of the year comes around they're still healthy with their their top horses and then they can you know depending on where they are in this in the season finish it out strong so i I, i'm also curious you know I, i think it's natural when we talk about pitching to think about starters workloads but i'm really curious how teams are going to handle their relievers um and It, it just feels like because these guys are going to have to pitch on back to back days and they might get one day off, but then they're like back in the fire the next day. How are teams going to one, construct their rosters and their bullpens just in terms of number of bodies on the pitching staff that they, they bring up north to start the season? And then how are they going to deploy these bullpen arms over the course of the year? And how many people are going to, you know, be on the shuttle? Um, Between the alternate site and the major league team, is it's all fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think this goes back to the depth thing we talked about. Just there, I think there are going to be plenty of teams um, who are looking at what they have and considering themselves like we have a nine or ten man bullpen. It's just we're we're rotating in seven guys. You know what I mean? There's maybe only four permanent parts of the bullpen, and the rest is this churn. I think you're going to see tons of, of, moves up and down for being between AAA and the big leagues for the, for the teams that have that kind of depth and have, you know, players with options. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of moving around to that. I think you're going to see teams going to six man rotations at times. Um, uh, there's a lot of off days built into the season early on. I, I mm-hmm. think, and part of that is, is by design because of what's going on, but I could, I could see in July, like a team, you know, the manager announcing for the next two weeks, we're going to a six man just to give everyone an extra blow. Right. Um, and I think you're also going to see teams, you know, doing, uh, I think you'll be, see more teams than just the Rays doing, uh, pen games, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see some teams doing piggybacks like you see in the minors sometimes, where it's like, these are our two starters today. We're hoping that, we're hoping that, that, that Smith and Jones, but that we can get six innings out of these two guys. And then we'll, and then we'll go to the, and then we'll go to the pen. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so, I, it, I think it's going to take. I think it's going to be a lot of creativity. I, you know, to go back to like starter workload. I really do wonder like how many guys are going to get to two hundred innings this year. I think it's a tiny
2: number. I agree. You know, <laughs> I I agree. I'm like
1: I'm like well, Garrett Cole will.
2: Hmm. And I I don't have a whole lot of other names for you. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think Garrett Cole will will get there as long as he's healthy. Obviously. I think he he's spoken about it a couple times, just saying that he's prepared to pitch that many innings like uh, that he I, went into the offseason. I believe with him. that in mind. <laughs> yeah.
1: So do I. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's an interesting character.
2: Yeah. Uh, I I thought the Yankees uh, from the Yankees perspective, there was like the big fifth starter competition between basically between Davey Garcia and Domingo Herman mm-hmm. and I. I was curious if they were going to use the two of them to piggyback. Yeah. To do the piggyback thing. And it, it feels like that's not going to happen. And I was also thinking about how they could use Chad Green in that position. But now that they have so many injuries in their bullpen, it feels like they're hamstrung a little bit to, to at least use Green as an opener because they really need him on the back end with Wilson and uh Britton being hurt. So, yeah, it's, it, I, I think you're definitely going to see piggybacks and – bullpen games and, you know, all kind of creative ways to just basically steal innings to preserve the the rotation. Um, and when so, you think
1: about, like, the two and three holes for the Yankees right now with with some some order of Kluber and Tyon, like, realistically, what's your expectation for them innings-wise? Like, if, if they get 300 innings out of those two, I think they'll be thrilled.
2: Yeah, I'd feel like that's... <laughs> That's probably the maximum amount, like in a very optimal situation, especially. Well, really, for both of them, I was going to say, especially for Tyon, but even for Kluber, I mean, he hasn't he obviously hasn't pitched that much in the last two years. So um, I think that if they were able to get 150 innings each or some, you know, some kind of like um, division of of innings that got them the 300, I think that that would be the optimal situation for them. And again, like going back specifically to the Yankees and their pen in that context, losing those those two relievers like hurts them because I, I feel like the smart play is to make sure that Kluber and Tyon get through the, the early stages of the season um, and not putting so much stress on their arms. Mm-hmm. But it's tougher to do that when your big bullpen arms aren't available, and then you have to trust guys that uh might have struggled last year or, or really haven't pitched on the major league level that much. So I feel like guys like Mike King and Davey Garcia might have a more prominent role for the Yankees than we might expect. Um just because there's so many variables and managing of of innings and um yeah it's it's gonna be you're gonna to have to be creative. Like think, every team is gonna be have to be creative. Yeah, and I think this proves it
1: out just in the sense that like we're a week away and we're already talking about how teams are going to handle it because they already have guys hurt. Right. Um, the other big story to come last this week, and it, it it's weird. It's a weird story because it started off very very hot, and then I don't know if Major League Baseball made an attempt to kind of change the narrative a bit. I think they did, um, and they were somewhat successful. Was the story of uh, the sticky stuff and how major league baseball is going to be monitoring the sticky stuff <coughs> excuse me <Sorry>. um <clears throat> and how major league baseball is going to monitor this the the use of sticky stuff they're going to be randomly pulling balls out of games and testing them like like csi style <laughs> they're going to be uh uh this is where things got, got scary as well they're going to be Looking at StatCast data to look at, at, at abnormal spin increases and try to identify uh, what teams are doing. And there's been no talk, there's been some talk about punishments for this kind of stuff, and people got worked up and they kind of slowed it down. MLB tried to slow down the message and say, hey, this is mostly investigatory. We're trying to figure out what players are using and why. And, and pitchers have been frustrated the ball for years. And, and honestly, like people I've talked to in the game said this wouldn't be a problem if they would just fix the damn ball. Cause the ball really does get, has gotten slicker and slicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously it's no secret Garrett Cole uses sticky stuff, but it's also no secret that 80% of guys use sticky stuff. And, and, and just to get a, a better grip on the ball. Um, I mean, this goes back to some, like, at what point they've, it, this has been going on forever, forever, for decades. You know, every pitcher's got something going on. If you watch a baseball game, um, sometimes it's more obvious than not. You know, right of, um, you know, Pineda having basically a bucket <laughs> of tar on his arm. But like, just watch pitchers like sticking their thumb in their belt, um, going to their hat. Like, like they all have something going on. And there's always been a, a, a tacit understanding of that. Is, is, is Major League Baseball doing the right thing here? Is it, is it, is it okay just to say, look, we're going to be completely pure by the rules from now on? Is that okay, even though this has been going on for decades and, and basically, for lack of a better term, been
2: decriminalized? I, I, Part of it to me is you have to have some kind of substance because you don't want a guy throwing 100, losing control of the ball and hitting somebody in the head. Right. I mean, you know, there's like a safety element to it, but for me, it's a part of the game. I mean, I, I, I there are definitely instances where I think guys have abused it, and it's pretty clear. Like, if you look at the data, um, but in the same turn, that's the playing field that all these guys are playing in. So, I don't know. I, I feel like I understand the intent of... The, the measurements, but I'm not sure it's really going to get anywhere. And it feels ultimately like much, much do about nothing because you can't really regulate it and you can't use stat casts as your justification for a punishment. I mean, I don't see how the two things correlate to one another. I think that that's one piece of evidence, but you still need some actual, like, concrete evidence to prove that this, this person or this pitcher was. Going above and beyond with the substances. Or you could just say, here's a league approved substance Mm -hmm. and regulate it and just standardize it. And then, you know, if you're not going to fix the ball, then have a standardized substance that everybody has access to and then play ball. Everybody knows what they're, everybody's on
1: the same page at least. But like, and even with the StatCast stuff, there's two issues with the StatCast stuff. Um, So the first is obviously technology in the game. That teams use has grown exponentially in the last decade, right? Right. Uh, Statcast with Repsoto, with TrackMan, with Blast Motion. We can name eight million technologies out there that teams are using to help measure what's happening on a field, and um, that one of the unions' issues has always been: you are going to use this data against us, and the teams mm. are always arguing. No, we're trying. We're using this to try to make you guys better baseball players. And if you're a better baseball player, you're going to make more money. This is good. This is good. And now Major League Baseball comes and says, "Yeah, we're going to use this against you." Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and it, I think it screws up that whole dynamic. And I don't know why you do this at a time when, like, we're in the last year of a CBA, and we're and and there's the whole world knows it's going to get ugly. Right. Why make it uglier right now? Why even if you're going to do this, wait a year or or work it out with the union as opposed to just. Doing this unilaterally. And I think they've always been super cautious about the data. They always said it's going to be used against us. And now here's Major League Baseball, not the teams, who they always said was going to, the Major League Baseball saying we're going to use it against you. And the, you know, the other thing I think about is just, you know, obviously the Astros were, were, you know, often everyone's caught up, but on the forefront to some of the pitching data stuff and, and spin rate and things like that. And you had players coming up and, and now every team has them where you can work with them and and improve their spin rate and get a better breaking ball out of them, um, for lack of a better term, naturally. You know what I mean? Like just through coaching right. and talking about grips and releases. Um, and now all of a sudden, like, you know, well, its spin rate's up 300, thing. he must be doing something. And like, well, maybe he is doing something and it's totally legit. And now that seems to go out the window. And so I just don't, like, baseball has 8 million problems. I don't know why this is a focus.
2: Yeah, it's I don't either. But also, even with the data, how do you create a uniform baseline of, you know, if you're above this spin rate, then right. like the the alarms go off. But if you're below it, then you're fine. But who's to say that the guy who's pitching with the spin rate below that arbitrary line isn't using the substance that you're accusing the other guy of? Just to get close so, to the
1: line because he can't spin it at all.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of guys that don't have great Spin on their pitches, and they might use a substance to just be average. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, how do you even? What's the what's the line of demarcation to even pursue it? And honestly, to me, if if Major League Baseball really cared about this, they would get rid of the rosin bag. Mm-hmm. I mean, r- rosin plays a part in all of this as well, and is like readily accessible on the mound. So. Guys can use the rosin bag, especially in different climates. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to really smart people that, you know, understand all the physics of it and understand the impact of it. But rosin, depending on the climate that you're in, can really impact the way that the ball behaves as well. But the rosin bag is there for every pitcher in every park, in every game. And if they really wanted to address this, that would be one easy fix to, to kind of, eliminate whatever issues they might have with this particular topic and it's right, still right. going to be there they're, they're going to use it so i don't know i i mean i, I feel like there are some pictures where you can kind of tell that something's going on just by their mannerisms <laughs> um and i always go back to uh kenny rogers against the yankees in the 2006 ALDS, like, clearly using Pine Tar from his, uh, from his cap and, like, you could, or his wrist or whatever it was, um, to beat the Yankees in the playoffs. And I was pissed off then, but I mean, it is what it is. What are you going to do? Like, I'm pretty sure there was somebody on the Yankees that at some point was doing something too. So, you know, I don't know. Like you said, there's so many other things that are going on right now that need to be addressed that, you know, I don't think that this is that big of a deal.
1: And so uh you except before this this is by the time this is episode six, by the time episode seven is going into your ear holes, the regular season will have started. Um so the Yankees open up Thursday at home with the Blue Jays. Where will you be? Will you do you stop everything to watch that game at one o'clock? Absolutely. Nothing else matters. (laughs) So 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 how do you roll during the entire season? Like are there things that would take crestance over um are you a pure new york fan like knicks rangers no. so okay hell no okay so who's your i hate team? the knicks oh, who's your nba, team? <laughs> who's your NBA uh, team
2: so i'm like a 90s kid so i'm a bulls fan <laughs> okay um so, scotty and be, because of scotty pippen not michael jordan michael jordan is great, oh you're one of those okay but, i got you I, yeah.
1: as a chicagoan I, I, I know those i know that group that group
2: yeah um when the uh when the Pistons were beating the shit out of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, I was a fan. Because my sister and I thought Scottie Pippen looked funny. Well, you know, we were kids. <laughs> and then we are like, oh, he's good. So, like, the funny-looking the funny looking guy is good. Like, we like the Bulls. And they were still losing to the Pistons. And then when they started winning, it was like, oh, this is like a dream come true. This is amazing. So, if, if the Bulls were in the NBA playoffs, <clears throat> let me make this harder for you. If the Bulls were in
1: the NBA finals in the summer... Does that take precedent over the
2: regular season Yankees game? Yes. Okay. In that situation, yes. First round of the
1: playoffs, does that take precedence?
2: Nah, I'll I'll flip back and forth. The finals, I'm like locked in on the championship because that's what it's about. But a first round playoff game, nah, I watch. I'll go back and forth, but I'll I'll the Yankees will take precedence. Okay, and then I know just from you tweet you watch hockey. I do watch hockey. Rangers fan. I'm a Rangers fan because I'm just getting into it. So I okay. know the Rangers are young and, like, up and coming. So okay. I, I figure I can get in on the ground floor with them. Rangers-Stanley Cup Finals. You going to watch that instead of the Yankees regular season game? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, mm, yeah, I would watch the Stanley Cup because, again, it's the championship. So, yeah, I would watch the Stanley Cup. Okay. And then football, which, what, are you? what's
1: your football team? It's the Niners, 49ers. right? 49 you tweeted yep. about them. 49ers. 49ers. In the see, this doesn't matter because there's no overlap. Well, okay, so so regular see, this is regular season Sunday 49ers game, like early in the season when baseball is still going on versus like a Yankees regular season game in September.
2: Uh, I'm gonna cheat because I have the red zone channel, <laughs> so <laughs> I'll just go back and forth, but I will okay, so I will say this when, um, the Yankees lost to the Astros in 2019. I mean, I you know, hard to, hard to even say that, especially like the way it ended. But I was heartbroken for a couple days, but that was also the year that the 49ers like came back and like were good again. Mm-hmm. So the 49ers season at that time, they were still undefeated when the Yankees lost. So like that kind of blunted the blow of the Yankees losing. So it's like, oh, I have something else to look forward to that I can like. You know, I can drown my sorrows in the 49ers' success. And that's exactly what happened. So I kind of, like, used the 49ers to get over the Yankees. And I felt better. And then they lost the Super Bowl. And I was, like, devastated. <laughs> you know, so, so it, it's always a risk. So out of 162 Yankee games, how many do you think you'll watch live? Uh, like,
1: 158.
2: <laughs> okay, that, that's a fan. I'm... No, I I like it's like must must see TV for me. Like I, I'm a filmmaker, but I feel like I consume sports way more than films. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I honestly try to watch every single Yankees game, and then I try to watch a West Coast game. That was just my like question. Like, like
1: you know, so the Yankees play a one o'clock game opening day. You, you know they'll be done by four thirty. Um, you'll watch baseball throughout the day. Yeah, I'm okay. watching
2: as many games as possible. Gotcha. Yeah, because I don't want to be I'm a baseball fan. I mean, I'm I'm an obsessive Yankees fan, but I'm obsessed with baseball and I want to I want to watch baseball. I just I love it. So I try to consume as many games as as possible. And also, I just want to be knowledgeable of other teams. So when you have conversations with people, you have some semblance of what's going on and not always looking at it through like your favorite team's perspective. Right.
1: This is a weird year for me because I'm entering like a, you know, obviously I'm going to watch baseball all day, every day. This is what I do. But it's right. weird. It's for the first time in in nine years, I'm not revolved around when the Astros game is. Right. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch every Astros game, which is what obviously what I always did, but like, it's going to be weird just to like, okay, what's the best game right now? What's the most interesting thing going on right now?
2: Um, do you have any, any interest like in a particular team, like for any reason, or are you just like watching it? Just um, because.
1: I definitely, like, want to see talent, if you will. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, you're going to pay. like, who's pitching? Um, you know, the West Coast, the oh, Padres or the Dodgers are on. You're going to want to watch that. You right. know, and so it's, it's more like watching the best players. But, and also, you know, keeping track of who comes up. Like, oh, you know, they, they just called up, you know, prospect, big famous prospect and watching that game, see what that looks like. You know, and right. it's more about, it's it, it changes from watching teams to watching players for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm watching. Sense. I'm watching players, um, and so I think
2: I think I'm doing the same when it's not the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's certain teams that I want to watch for the teams like the Padres, obviously, um, the White Sox. I find very interesting because there's so much hype around them, and I'm curious to see if they can actually live up to that hype.
1: And they have so many fun players; like they're fun to watch.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure that they have the right manager for those fun guys, but yeah. I, I, could be wrong. I don't know. They that might saying, be my own bias. They keep saying the
1: right things, but yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll see when uh when the heat gets turned up. If it's <laughs> if they're saying the right things, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we'll take a break.
1: It's the news of the week. We'll come back. We'll talk about music. Post some listener emails. We'll talk about movies and other things. so stick around.
0: shame Those pathetic hustles Those insignificant days my years and counting Memory fades Still screaming outside the airlock Still punching in a daze of this misery The choices I made This life's catching up with me Darkness in vain. Dark ranges. All these-
1: podcast. Listening to Neutron and the secret Friends. Uh, if you were a fan of the old podcast, Conan's band Victory and Associates were played a couple times. Uh, they had uh, one of my favorite song titles of ever. You can't eat prestige, but this is uh, his, some of his newer stuff. Conan Neutron, and the secret friends. It's Conan Neutron, Tony Ash, uh, Dale Crover from the Melvins uh, playing uh, big rock for you. Uh, Toshi Kasai is at the production, kind of a famous producer from Japan who does kind of heavier stuff. He's uh, recorded uh, Tool and Helmet and bands like that. Uh, Big Rock Thrills in a post-punk package. Uh, also, he calls his music arena rock for smart asses and malcontents, of which at times I can be both. Uh, Dark Passengers is the name of the album's the most recent full-length record. It's 11 songs about depression, mental health, imposter complex, and other topics along those lines. It's on Learning Curve Records. You can find Conan, Neutron, and The Secret Friends, Uh, All the normal places you'd expect it to be, Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, all those kind of things. And thanks to Conan for getting in touch and saying, play my music again, which I was happy to do. You want to get into listener email? Yeah, let's do it. We got three of them. We're going to start with Alex. Alex, rather. And Alex says, "Uh, in your opinion, how much does not being able to play their home games in Toronto affect the team? Right now, the plan is for the Jays to start the season in Dunedin and then move up to Buffalo in June. I would assume the less moving around, the better. Um, I don't think the moving around matters as much as the fact that they're just always going to feel like they're on the road. They can settle it as much as they want to in Dunedin um, and or Buffalo. But, you know, home field advantage is partially, you know, some of the stuff we talked about in the first segment, just the environment of having fans on your side, if you will. There's also just like this big comfort to being at home and sleeping in your own bed and eating home cooked meals and spending time with your family that gets kind of undermeasured, and it's one of the reasons teams play better at home. And I think the Jays have this huge disadvantage because that's out the that's just out the window for now.
2: So, how important? Okay, so I, I guess my question to tag on to Alex's question is: Is it are they just better off staying in Florida? For as long as possible, because at least they have some kind of home routine, if you will, being at their spring training facility and and playing games there, rather than going from Florida to Buffalo and hopefully Toronto at some point. Does doesn't it make more sense to just stay in Florida since they that is some kind of semblance of home for them?
1: Yeah, you might be right. I don't know, and that's one of those things. Like, like, what do we base our opinions off the past and what we know about the past? And this is such uncharted territory. Like I don't maybe, I don't know. I mean, I think the move to Buffalo is to be, is to. I mean, I guess you could fit more people in Buffalo, but um, it's a fair question. It's a it's a really fair question. I mean, sure they do have more comfort in Dunedin because they're at there every they're there for you know six weeks every spring and they they know the surrounding area. Um, but it's a good question. But I, I do think that they are. I don't want to say unfa- unfairly is not a good word because I you know. Canada's doing what Canada's doing, and I, and, and I respect it. But I do think that they have a disadvantage that no other team has because of their inability to play in their stadium this year.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I thought that they did really well for themselves last year in such a crazy season, but on top of that being in Buffalo and yeah. to make the playoffs, I thought it was a a really great accomplishment, especially for a young team, and a young team that has clear. Yeah. I I mean, not fun for me watching them against the Yankees for (laughs) however many games. Yeah. Yeah. But I think for a team that has clear limitations for them to perform at the level that they did while playing through a pandemic and playing away from home, quote unquote, I thought was one of those best storylines of last year that didn't really get talked about enough. Yeah, for sure. And I, I believe in the last hour or two uh, they made an announcement um, for in the NHL that the quarantine times for American players to get traded uh, to Canadian teams in the NHL is going from fourteen to seven, so I think that's kind of a good sign in the, in the sense that you know maybe there is a possibility that the Blue Jays can eventually go to Toronto later in the season. Um, instead of just playing all their games in Florida and, and Buffalo for 162 games, I mean that that just sounds rough to do that for a full season. Like 60 games, okay, but yeah. I mean that they're definitely at a disadvantage.
1: I, I don't do hockey at all. Like, are they playing in Canada?
2: Yeah, so they they've basically did a, a realignment of their divisions to uh, address travel concerns. So. Mm-hmm. The divisions are based on geography, so you're basically playing... I think there are four eight-team divisions. Uh, I might have the number of uh, teams in each division wrong, but there's basically a Canada division. So all the Canadian teams stay in Canada, and they just play each other. And then all the teams in the Eastern division, they just play each other. So there isn't... Yep. Well, no. uh, The the Rangers have... uh, In Canada, I, I believe they are, but the Rangers are playing in front of limited capacity. Um, as are the Knicks, so right. I, I, you know, it's just like how the NFL was, where different cities, different uh, state mandates. So, um, yeah, they the, the Canadian teams are basically just playing each other all year.
1: Uh, our next email comes from Brian. Brian says, "Hi, Kevin, glad to have you back broadcasting. Good to be broadcasting again. I don't know if this is broadcasting, but uh, I've been thinking it's about something. Though, it's something." You know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I have to have a podcast that's mandated by the government. Uh, I've been thinking (laughs) about the Royals-Red Sox-Mets trade centering around Ben and how the pieces of the trade work with limitations of this season versus regular seasons. It seems like there's a wide variance in how people look at all the players in the trade. How do you assess the value of the potential player to be named later? Given that the Mets got Khalil Lee, it's safe to assume that their player to be named later is somewhat significant, or at least somewhat more than the regular Jag, Also, assuming there's a short list of who the players to be named later are and that the Sox have a limited time to select from that pool, what can the Sox hope to see from these players as they ramp up this spring? Just if they're healthy, can they even scout these players in the backfields or during workouts or only when they're in spring training games? How would the Royals-Mets treat these players in these pools? And would the players know that they might be potentially part of this deal? So a lot of of questions, a lot of things to talk about here. Uh, The first thing to understand is that players to be named later... Uh, have to be resolved in six months. So it's six months since the trade. So they will get spring, but they also will get a little bit of of the minor league season, hopefully to look at these guys. They can see them if the teams have a policy and most do that allow scouts in the backfields. The players absolutely don't know they're potentially part of this deal. It's the last thing you want to tell anybody. Um, But for the chances are good. Uh, It's not 100%, but chances are really good that there is a list of players out there it's like the, the player to be named later will be one of these four guys and we will pick by this date um often you see players to mean later turn into cash later on that's not gonna be the case here this is actually probably a real player um and they'll look at these guys and they'll, and they'll pick one and that'll be the guy but players never know they're in trades until after the trade goes down um you notify them after that uh they they're, they're during trade deadline time and all sorts of and the off season, they're checking Twitter all the time to see if they're on the move. Um, it just creates some some undue stress. But you have six months. Teams can scout this spring on the backfield. So you're going to get a little extra look at them and, and figure out who they want and, and go from there. But um, a lot of that stuff just comes like we don't know who you we want. We'd like these three guys. And you say, fine, you have one of those three guys. Take your time on them and we'll get the deal done. And you can, you got six months to figure it out. It's, it's
2: it's it can be more complicated than it needs to be sometimes. Do you know why the player to be named later is a thing in baseball? Like what's the history of that rule?
1: Often it's it's a situation where like you're getting near the deadline of the, 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 the July trade deadline and like you can't work it out. So you just get it, You have to get it done before the deadline. So you just say the player to be named later and you'll figure that out later. <laughs> but, but so often like this and again not the case in the batteny deal but so often it is um like these smaller deals is it's 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 really it's it's bureaucracy and paperwork can make it easier is like you send the guy who you're getting ready to take off your 40 man you send him to team x for a player to be named later and you always see that 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 um at the end or cash considerations and the rules are is you can't Sell a player, right? Right. But if you just do it for player to be named later or cash considerations, then you say, "Ah, oh, we couldn't work out the player. We'll do it for the cash considerations." And you basically sell the player. Um, so tons of player. Most player to be named later deals are these tiny little deals, and they just turn into the cash considerations at the end of the day. But for ones like this, it's usually it's it's a list. They want to get the deal done. Um, the the team wants more more time to 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 really scout up and evaluate those players. Uh, more happens in the season than the offseason, like the Bad Tenney deal. And you just give them some time to do that.
2: Right. Yeah, it's, that's always been one of the most bizarre things in player transactions to me. That baseball specifically has this, like, the player, player to play be play. named. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 vaunted uh, cash considerations. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's big in uh, the NBA, but it always, like, pops up in, in MLB. And it always makes me laugh because I'm just like, this just seems so... <laughs> minute and like yeah. detailed. <laughs> and it it's is like, and,
1: you know, it's a situation where you're basically getting $5,000 more than the waiver price to guarantee he goes to you. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And so, right. you know, it's, it's the waiver claim. Like, well, I'll trade you a player or cash considerations of five grand over that. And that way I make, I can make sure I'm getting him for a little bit more than you'd get for the waiver claim. And you go, oh, okay, that's great.
2: The good old loopholes
1: moving on. There's 8 million of them, man. Yeah. Um, Final question is a bit of a deep one. I, I, you know, I want to talk about this from my angle, but I'm actually more interested in, in kind of your angle as a filmmaker on this question. Uh, this comes from Nick, and Nick says, the funny thing about listening to podcasts is that our brains trick us, the unwashed masses into thinking we're somehow special to the host, like we're friends or at least peers. Podcast hosts travel with us on commutes, they keep us company while we do yard work, they entertain us while we clean the bottle room, which is a nice callback to the old show. Uh, when I tried to figure out why Up and In seemed to connect with listeners in such a personal way, it became clear that for some dumb reason, everybody seemed to think that the podcast catered to them in some unique way. Everyone I meet seems to have a slightly different headcanon that tells them why they're the special listener. And I think that's the mark of great writers and communicators. This is a very long way of asking what you feel like your relationship is to your audience. Does a reading audience feel different from a listening audience? Or even if neither group can give you feedback, obviously you don't really know the vast majority of us and you'll never meet us. And I also understand you've only been in writing for several weeks and the new podcast still has its baby bird bones. But I'm curious where your head is at the moment. It relates to your audience. And the same goes for whoever your esteemed co-host might be. Um, I do consider my audience different for this, and the writing. I consider my writing my writing audience in my mind is very much more murky. It's more gray. It's more wide ranging. It's more generalized. It's more I don't know antiseptic. Um, I, I don't. I, I, I'm information based and far less personality based in, in my writing. Um, I'm trying to be informative and educational. Um, and trying and, and in this, like I have always loved my podcast my podcast audience at the same time. Like I do the podcast that way I want to do it period. Like I don't really aim anything. If people want to listen to this, that's great. I do this for myself. I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, you know when I was talking to, to David Appleman about coming to fangraphs, there's all sorts of stuff we talked about and everything was like, yeah, that's great. I'll do it that way. that's fine you just need to understand the podcast is mine. I'm doing it exactly the way I want it. Full creative control. You can't, it's all mine. I'm doing it absolutely the way I want it. And I do it the way I want it, regardless of, of really a lot of listener feedback. I just got to do what <laughs> I want. And if people like it, that's great. Um, but if not, that's fine too. Cause I'm, this is, I'm doing what I want. It's my show. I would rather have 500 people really like what I'm doing in the way I really like it. than have, you know, 50,000 people and me doing a show I didn't like doing. And so, that's kind of how I approach it. Now, I mean, Brandy, when you're making movies or you're making, when you're creating something personal, you know, we talked that you are in development for an original script and things like that. Is this like, I want to make this? How much of this is, I, this is what I want to make and this is what I want to do. And is there any aspect of, I think audiences would really like this?
2: It's 100% the stories that I want to tell, but there's a complexity to it. So I want to tell the stories that I'm personally invested in, um, and that I find engaging, that I find dramatic that I feel has emotional resonance. And if I feel emotionally, I'm connecting to it and excited by it, then that's probably a story that I want to tell. With that said, once I land upon a story that I think satisfies all those requirements, then I view myself as a vessel with the ultimate goal of creating a a film where audience members see themselves in some way on the screen. So I no longer feel that it's totally about me in the process of making a film or telling a story. I think that the ultimate goal and the ultimate measurement of success is when Somebody watches the film and can relate to it on a very emotional level and whatever that thing is specifically that connects an audience member to the film, I don't want to determine, I don't want to guess what it is. I don't want to influence it. I want to present the story with the best craft possible and execute it well and execute it with humanity. The specifics of it is not up to me, but the importance is that it happens. So if we use 86 to 32 as an example. Now you mentioned it earlier is about Roy Jones getting screwed in the 1988 Olympics.
1: Yeah. For people a that lot know, p- he was, it was a gold medal fight and the judges Roy Jones junior beat the shit out of the guy. And then the judges ruled it for the, for the Korean fighter. And the, and the fix was in, like it was, it was set from the start. The fix was in, he got robbed.
2: Right. So there are a lot of people that have seen that film that don't watch boxing or don't like boxing, but they love the film. Mm. And the reason why is because there are human emotional moments laced throughout the film that allowed a universal, um, attachment to, to occur for people that were either boxing enthusiastic enthusiasts or not. And there was an emotional foundation that carried all the way through the film. To me, that's my job as a director. So that when I finish telling the story, you don't necessarily have to be an expert in that particular topic. Um, you don't have to even know the background of the story. But by the time you're done, you understand the journey that the people on the screen went through and that they can say, I understand what that means to lose something. Or I understand what it means to sacrifice for something that I love so much and not get the payoff at the end and that's where that emotional resonance comes where i feel like it's my job to to service that so when i pick a story i'm not thinking about the audience it's it's the stories that resonate with me that i can connect with because i have to put my all into it and i have to be able to feel like if i execute my craft the way that i can that the final product um has this emotional presence everything beyond that is the audience kind of like takes over and it's my job to deliver that well so that they can go on that emotional journey with the people that they see on the screen.
1: I mean, you talked about how you, you kind of don't want to steer them in a certain way or define what their experience is, and, and you just kind of want to be this vessel. Do you ever kind of, you know, when you're working on something, kind of catch yourself, Oh shit, that's what I'm doing here. I'm kind of pandering and you back out of it. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? No, kind of because,
2: thing or- no because I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I'm going into it with the intention of pandering at all. That's, that's why that's why I focus on the word craft. I think that there's so many things that go into it, so it's kinda like a general term in a sense. But I feel like if you're if you're skilled at the storytelling craft, you're not pandering. Because somewhere along that process, you would find moments either in the script or in the the footage of for a documentary, whatever it is that you're doing, a commercial that Those elements that could feel like pandering or um, like you're explaining things to the audience, you would get rid of them before you even made it or you finished it. So if it feels like exposition, you do your best to like take that out. Because there's, I think a lot of filmmakers don't give audiences enough credit for their intelligence in understanding stories. And film is like a weird thing because it's very hard to make a film, but it's not hard to understand what makes a good story and how you can connect to a story as an audience member. Like people understand film language uh, intrinsically without even realizing it. And I think that filmmakers have to respect that. But in terms of actually telling a story on film, you could be the most skilled filmmaker and still like, fuck up. Um, it's, It's a very difficult process to master so i think you don't get the pandering if you're very aware of all the steps in the process and again focus on those emotional beats and that emotional foundation and i feel like that takes you very far because it's really about connection with stories and if you're able to to do that then i feel like you're you've been successful in telling that story
1: so that's it for listener email. If you want to send in a listener email, we read them all. We answer some of them. Chinmusic at fangrass.com. Uh, Randy, you're a filmmaker. Can I ask you more questions about being a filmmaker? Of course. So I have lots of musician friends. I don't have a lot of filmmaker friends. Um, and when you talk to like musician friends, there was, they always have you know some sort of moment, if you will. And, and it, it always falls into two categories. It's like, Oh I heard the Ramones oh, or or oh I heard Kraftwerk or oh I heard the Clash and I said I want to do that or there's the other grouping which is kind of access to the equipment if you will oh my dad bought me a guitar you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, did you have a moment either in terms of seeing something or getting a camera or something that made you say this is what this is this is for me this is what I want to do
2: it was trying to get an art credit to graduate from college on time <laughs> <laughs> I needed to, uh, I mean, that's, that's really what it was. I, my senior year, so my, the summer between my junior year and senior year to connect the to, uh, baseball, I had a tryout with the Kansas City Royals. And that was like the highlight of my life, like an in- invited tryout. Like this was amazing. Uh, we did it at, uh, Dwight Clinton High School in the Bronx. And, I was like oh man like i'm one step closer to my dream of playing baseball so i did pretty well to try out but i mean i wasn't gonna be a major leaguer like that wasn't gonna happen i wasn't that talented so um i went for my senior year the only credit that i needed to graduate and uh satisfy all my requirements was an art credit because i took three art classes the three previous years in school and I dropped all three of them and I, I couldn't drop another class. I'd never viewed myself as an artist. I was um, an English major. I loved analytical essays. I loved reading, but I didn't do a lot of creative writing, yeah. but I always had like scenes in my head. But I mean, I, that didn't really mean anything. So I took this video narrative course uh taught by mary Haverstick, who was an alum of franklin and marshall college that's where i went to undergrad in lancaster pennsylvania and she was a working filmmaker who lived in the area and i took this class only because i had to graduate right and i had no idea that a regular kid from the bronx could make a film i thought films were magic they just kind of like appeared on the screen like, I, I didn't know anything about the process. I, I knew nothing about it. I just knew that you had a camera and actors and, like, you just made a movie. And within five minutes of the first class, I realized that this is what I wanted to do and that I was actually good, I that I understood it instinctually. Mm-hmm. Literally five minutes. She showed us, Mary showed us um, a clip of a scene and, like, told us, like, some of the things that would break you know what go in what goes into making a scene and i i got it as soon as she just explained it and from that point forward this this new world opened up to me and it's very hard to describe because it was very um spiritual in a way i mean it it was just i could see things that other students couldn't see when we started doing the hands-on production stuff i got it right away I understood the language. I understood the process, and I had never been taught before, so it was like instinctual in a way. Mm-hmm. And that class completely changed my life. Mary changed my life. Eventually, I met uh, Spike Lee at my school, and he changed my life. But it always comes back to that class and needing that art credit, and it, it changed the entire direction of my life.
1: And you just did? You just go from there, saying you're going to film school?
2: No, I. I didn't really know how to get into the industry like a lot of young filmmakers. I mean, that's always like the question that young filmmakers are always chasing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I met Spike, this is a good Spike story. I know you wanted me to come up with a Spike <laughs> story. But, um, so, Does he know you um, hate the Knicks, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah. He knows okay. I'm a Bulls fan. We've, we've had many arguments about it. I just want to make sure to still work with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I <laughs> no. We've, we've definitely had our moments where we've talked shit about each other's teams. So... Um, so the art class I took was in 2000. I got hurt. I blew my knee out, um, my final semester in school. So I couldn't even graduate on time because I got hurt. Um, and then I came back, um, in the fall of 2001, 9-11 happened. I graduate, but I didn't want to come back home because of 9-11 and there was like nothing going on. So I actually pitched the school on allowing me to make, to use the equipment On campus to uh, direct a documentary on a black owned barbershop in a white neighborhood uh, where my school was and the school let me do it I premiered it at this uh, Africana Studies Arts Conference the room was packed and like I showed the film and got a standing ovation and was able to connect the community with the school community which is like rarely happened Mm. Um, so I caught the bug so thankfully there was a new president for Franklin and Marshall uh, right after I premiered that film, and he hired me to be a filmmaker in residence. He created this job for me to, to make films that focus on the school community. And during my time there, spike came. And the, every year, the school would have like a, uh, a leading figure in whatever field they were in um, to be accessible to the school community for about two days. So, I ended up being Spike's host. But when I first met Spike, it was at this dinner, and that same college president gave up his seat so I could sit next to Spike. So, within five minutes, you know, we're talking or whatever, and we immediately got into an argument over Pat the Bat Burrow. I remember <laughs> it like it was yesterday. Uh, so Franklin and Marshall was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is like an hour west of hour and a half west of Philly. So I would see a lot of Phillies games. So I saw, and this is when, uh, Burrow was still on the Phillies. And I was like, "Yo, he's terrible. He sucks, blah, blah, blah. And like, for some reason I brought him up or we were talking about him and I, you know, I said, oh, but he sucks. And and Spike was like, well, how does he suck if he's in the major leagues? And I was like, he still sucks. (laughs) So he had like this big, like, uh, philosophical conversation slash argument about like what determines if somebody's like good or not. And, um, you know, we hit it off in that way. And then I gave him a copy of a film that I had made for the school, um, that talked about the, that focused on the kind of non-mainstream communities on campus and, you know, to make a long story short, uh, when he was leaving to, go back to New York because his time at the school was done. I asked him if he had any advice and if he had seen the film. It was a documentary. And he said, yeah, but you need to learn how to make narrative films. And I was so naive then. I was like, I don't even know what a narrative film is. I didn't realize that it was like a scripted film. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm just happy that he saw it and like gave me some advice. And I was totally satisfied with that. And then he said, if you want a recommendation to go to NYU Film School, let me know. Here's my email. And I just kind of, like, stared at him. And I was like, is this guy serious? Like, this email is probably bullshit. Like, this is not a real email address that he's giving me. And uh, when he left, I emailed him right away to, to thank him. But it was also a test to see if this was, like, a real email. <laughs> and he wrote back right away. And he was like, you know, take me up on the NYU thing. The deadline is, like, in two days. So I, like, rushed to put this... Uh, package together for the uh, NYU application. He put in a good word for me. And I got waitlisted at NYU, actually. and the, But then eventually I got in, and the rest is history. So that's how that's how I got into film school, really, was meeting Spike, him giving me a recommendation, and throwing this application together. And uh, I aced my interview with NYU. So that's that's how I ended up there. Just wow. right place, right time.
1: And if you talk about like the difficulty again, just like the contrast, Uh, you know, I have friends in a band and if they want to make a record at this point, they can do it in their basement, you know, with, with the equipment that's out there, they can just say, Hey, we're going to record a record and they all get together and they record a record. If you want to make a film, especially a narrative film, like we all watch movies when the movies over the credits roll. And there are hundreds of names going by. Um,
2: It's not that easy, and it's not that cheap. It's hard as shit. (laughs) I mean, it's hard, but it's accessible now, which is the, the most important thing. And there are so many creative people and innovative people that can take a finite access to tools or finite resources and make something beautiful. And really, if you're creating and honing your craft, those small projects still matter. You know, it's still an experience. It's still a teaching moment. It's still an opportunity to to get better and find your voice, but also be able to execute storytelling uh, techniques and just being able to learn how to tell a story that people can connect to. So the accessibility is huge because even if it's not like a big time film or whatever, you're still putting things in the bank That you can build on so that if you have the courage to show your films, gives you exposure and then you can build on that and hopefully land in a situation and a position where, you know, you actually get some real resources and you have real support um, to make bigger things and execute bigger visions. But for a lot of filmmakers, the bigger issue is not making it, but it's sharing it Mm -hmm. and overcoming whatever fears you might have, whatever trepidations you might have, the the fear of being criticized or somebody not liking your work and then they keep it to themselves, but the whole point of making or, or telling a story is to share it. And a lot of times people are limiting themselves because they're they're too afraid to show their work to the world and be vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable as a filmmaker. The best filmmakers are also vulnerable in some way. So you know, I, I think the accessibility is, has leveled the playing field, but that courage to share it is is kind of like a line of demarcation in, in a lot of cases, especially for young filmmakers. So, it goes hand in hand.
1: I, I've always wanted to a somewhat related question. I've always wanted to ask people who would know this question. Um, obviously, there are plenty of bad movies out there. Um, you see a movie and you go, oh, God, that was awful. And do when when those movies are done like you've, you're done filming you're done editing you've put together this is the movie do they know it's bad then do they go oh this, this one just <laughs> this one just didn't work out do they know it while they're filming man the script is awful man this this is not this is bad the story's bad man this film's not good or like i know while they're editing and put together, like do they know once they go here you go here's the movie do they know then man this is, this is pretty bad
2: I think some do, and some are delusional. Uh-huh. You know, there's there's a wide range of personalities in film, and people get into film for like various reasons and um, motivations. So I think some people do, and some people don't. I think if you're in tune and honest, and you're aware of like the process to to tell that story or make that film. If you're in tune with it you can tell when there's hiccups or when something's not working but you're trying to like get through it and then there's some people who who honestly believe what they made was good so sometimes they don't even think it's bad they don't realize it's bad because they don't think it's bad Mm -hmm. the rest of us might think it's terrible but you know it it might be the vision that they had in mind and it was executed flawlessly so you know it's all subjective so I, i i think if somebody is aware of the process and understand understands that in moments throughout that process there have been issues that you can't always resolve or you didn't have the best solution to resolve it then i think people are honest with themselves um in other cases some people just think that they made the greatest film ever and they should get their roses and (laughs) there's something wrong with us and not them so you know it depends
1: is is there a movie out there that like is on a lot of people's like yeah you know, this is on my my favorite movies of all time this is one of my favorites of all time and for you it's just one of those like yeah i don't get it i don't i don't see it
2: oh yeah the, yeah there's a there's a bunch of them what's, what's <laughs> the, i, I
1: could, i'll show you my main one my main one is 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 uh shawshank redemption oh really I just think, I, I think it's pandering. I, th- I think it's manipulative, bad. I don't think it's a good movie. I, 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 just, I, I think, I mean, the ultimate pan. I think it's absolute pandering. I think it's bad. I have no desire to see if it's on. I'm like, I'm not watching this. I, I don't think it's a good movie. Like, what's your movie that's on everybody's list? of People love that You're like, yeah, I don't. It doesn't work for me. I don't like it.
2: Um there's a couple that I have but I don't want to say because I'd like know the people I know some of the people <laughs> You're involved. In a bad
1: spot. What's one where you yeah. don't know the people involved?
2: <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think. Uh. I, okay, I can't really think of one off the top of my head, but I I would say some of the like award like darlings, I don't get. Mm-hmm. Like some of them I'm just like I, I I have totally missed the boat on this. I, I don't I don't get it. Like I think that this movie is terrible. Um, I
1: you gotta name names at some point here.
2: Oh man. <laughs> um,
1: you don't have to. I really, sure. yeah. You're in the industry. I'm so like I'm right in it. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to ruffle guy too might, many feathers. That guy might be calling you someday.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. That's why I'm I'm trying to be strategic about it. But
1: um, you, you you talked about accessibility and how um it's gotten better at the same time. It feels like, I don't know, the Hollywood machine, if you will, has gotten really, um, I just I feel like all we get are comic book movies at this point. Um, yeah. Like is, is that good for independent film? Just in the sense that like, there's this whole world of movies that need to be made that aren't that, or is it kind of, or is it hurting them just because that's all Hollywood's focused on is this. We're just going to
2: make, we're going to release four blockbusters this year. That's our schedule. I think we have to look at it in terms of budget levels mm. and not like indie film versus Hollywood, because what is defined as an indie film at this point is not really an independent film. It's low budget, yeah, yeah. you know, mid budget, big budget. It's, it's more like on the budget levels now, because a lot of films that one would call an independent film because it's through a production company and not a big studio is not really an independent film. I it's mean, like you're getting like, backing. yeah, exactly. Like significant financial backing. So for me, I look at it in terms of, and, and this is very reflective of where our country is right now. And also even going back to baseball, like the free agent class in many ways, like there's, there's a middle class of films that is dwindling And it's either you do, like, the low-budget, like, indie darling film that catapults ex-filmmaker into a much larger project. So, it's like, um, you know, you have, like, the low-budget, say, below a million dollars. And then, all of a sudden, that person is doing, like, Star Wars. Right. Like, for their next project. But there isn't that, like, five to eight to ten to fifteen million dollar film where that person can... develop
1: they're given the resource to make a, an actual small film
2: right right that might be that isn't that like tentpole franchise film or isn't that like big blockbuster and i know from my personal experiences there in in talking to different industry execs and pitching to them and all that stuff there's like a, a very specific budget range that companies don't want to play in because they feel like it won't make enough money. Right. And that mentality limits the amount of films that are not necessarily low budget, like shoestring running gun kind of films that go to Sundance and, um, you know, aren't the big like blockbuster comic book movie things either. And it, there's like a, a realm where really great films sit in and have definitely sat in in the past. And I think we're getting less and less of those movies because of financial decisions and like um, what the projected back end profits will look like, you know. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Is, I, is, there's a trickle down from it.
1: Is the world of streaming now and where we are now? um, and even with like some movies coming out direct to streaming if you will like and and just availability and is that good for small filmmakers or not
2: I think it's good because it's a there's another opportunity for you to potentially have your stuff distributed mm-hmm. so they come with their own pitfalls they come with their own issues but I don't think there's anything totally wrong or bad for having more options. You know, it's more places to, to pitch your stuff, mm-hmm. um, more opportunities to have your film sold. So I think the more options that are available, you know, it, it's, it's advantageous. Now, again, it has its own issues in that ecosystem, but I personally don't see something wrong with having more options that can in some ways liberate a filmmaker and allow them to take more chances as opposed to being locked up with a studio mm-hmm. um, and, it, and going through that studio process.
1: Because it feels like this year and the last 12 months or so, and, and obviously so much of this is pandemic related, but like those darling like the Sundance darlings and, and things like that and, and things that, that you know got a lot of attention at South by Southwest and things like that, like they came to not the places you'd expect. All of a sudden they were like on Hulu. You know what I mean, right? Like, and it, and it just—I mean, I felt as someone who lives in DeKalb and has like one shitty theater within driving distance that just shows comic book movies. I certainly felt like it was advantageous to me selfishly, yeah, that I was able to see these things.
2: I um, mean, No No Land, yeah, which will probably win the Oscar for Best Picture, uh, is is like you said, is on Hulu, yeah. And I mean, I think that's great. You know, I, I don't. I don't see the the downside of that. You know, I I think that access is important for filmmakers.
1: Um, Did you like Than? Craig Calcaterra and I talked about it a couple episodes ago. Did you see it?
2: Uh, okay. So I do this weird thing now because I'm I'm watching films for research for a project uh-huh. and also trying to like watch films for pleasure. I've watched half of it because I okay. have to like break it up. It's just like I I don't know if I've like film ADHD now or something, but like (laughs) I I watch it in like pieces. So I've seen half of it. Okay.
1: Um, let's move from there into actual things. Uh, our moment of culture. We talk about something we've, uh, listened to, read, ingested somehow and enjoyed, um, and make a recommendation. My recommendation is a TV show that is on Apple TV plus. It is called calls. Have you heard about this? Uh,
2: briefly in a a short like a little bit about it
1: it's it's a hell of a conceit first of all so it is i believe it's nine episodes all the episodes are 14 to 20 minutes long Mm. and it's uh it's basically i don't want to give away the story but it's 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 you know it's a twilight zone it's like we're living in reality but weird things are going on right that kind of that kind of vibe Um, um but visually it's just phone calls. It's just literally phone calls, and the only thing you get visually are like sound waveforms, and oh wow, and and like the name on one name of caller number one on one side, like you know Dave, and and on the other side is Tom, and you actually do get it's not subtitles, but you get like the words that they're saying, and then waveforms in between. That's all you get. So you're listing these phone calls, Now you get are the waveforms. And it is strangely compelling. It is a remake of a, a... It's the same director, but he originally made this for Canal Plus. It was originally in French. And, mm. um, and Apple TV you know, got him to make the, the English version. There are a few decent-sized names in it. There's a lot of people you've never heard of, but like you know uh, Aubrey Plaza does an episode. Rosario Dawson does an episode. Um, mm. But it's just the two names talking. Sometimes there's more characters and there's other calls um and again like there's like weird twilight zony stuff going on and it all does end up getting connected in the end it starts off you think these are like separate stories um separate little weird snippets of stories by the time you get midway through you're like oh shit this is all connected and then by the end they don't stick the landing perfectly but by the end they do bring it all together um but i just i appreciate this the originality of it like Mm -hmm. hell of an idea and, and gutsy like there's there's no visuals and it's kind of, and I wonder how much of it is late to the pandemic. Like you just had to do voice recording, obviously. Right. Um, and, and it, it wouldn't work as a whole movie. Like if you were to look at this for a hundred minutes, <laughs> it, it would, right. you, this would, this would not work. But in like these, these little like 15 minute sections, it's fascinating and, and, and it's well done. It's well written and it's just, it's just waveforms and words. And I thought it was a, a fascinating idea. Mostly well pulled off, and, and and I I definitely recommend it if you get a chance to check it out.
2: Yeah, I need to check that out. That's very that's very creative and good use of the uh, horrible times that we're in. Yeah. So what do you got? Smart. I have Judas and the Black Messiah. Okay. And I I know that. Well, first I I know Shaka King, um, the director and, and one of the writers and producers of the film. We. Um, We knew each other prior to him going to nyu grad film but um saw him from the very beginning of his career up until uh big time oscar nominee status but and i know that the film for some is controversial in in terms of the framing of the main character and the history of um the black panthers in chicago and you know the lens that we're seeing it through but
1: yeah, for people don't know, this, I, this, 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 it's a biographical piece about Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, um, who was, let's just say, it, he was assassinated by the
2: government. Um, right. And, uh, but, but go on, so go on. So, I recommend it partly because, or mainly because of the, the craftsmanship of it, the, the actual filmmaking of it. I just think Shaka did a fantastic job telling that story. Um, from a director's point of view. And I think that the way that he used the camera and the execution of like visual language and the performances, uh, were fantastic. I, I just think it's a great piece of cinema. And I, I understand the, the political and, uh, Social, political slants on it, and and everybody's um, sometimes contrasting views of the actual story and the timeline and the events. Mm-hmm. But for me, as someone that really loves great craftsmanship, I think that the film is worth watching just for that. Um, so yeah, that would that would be my pick.
1: That's still on HBO Max, right? Yeah, yeah. it's still I there. should check it out. I mean, you should. Talk, there, there. We should talk about this a little bit. Like there has been some criticism from the left about how the story was told um, and maybe some things not getting told truthfully. I don't I don't really, I, I've only dabbled in it. I haven't seen the movie. Um, have you seen that kind of criticism and what do you think of it?
2: I haven't seen a criticism necessarily from the left. I've seen it from uh, black filmgoers and audience members. And their, their criticism is centering basically like "Quote unquote," the snitch at the heart of the the narrative, mm-hmm. and that you know that, and and I totally understand where people are coming from this uh, this concern with framing black revolutionaries as kind of like the villain or the other in a way, and centering the the government <clears throat> as like the hero or like. um you know, looking at people that, at black figures who challenge the American system, um, and putting them in a negative light or not putting them in the hero role is something that a lot of black audience members, not just for this film, but across the board for a lot of projects, um, have vocally criticized. And I get it. And in many cases, I agree. Um, so I understand that criticism of, judas and the black messiah and i think it's valid um and i so i recognize it so that's why like my suggestion is more along the lines of the craftsmanship of it um and i feel like the political positions of it is up to each and every audience member and i don't i don't think it's right and for my position to like influence it one way or the other um but I, I see the criticism and I, I think it's valid and I think it's part of a much larger conversation. I don't think it's oh it's entirely specific to this film. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, when you talk about the craftsmanship aspect of it, like what 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 stands out for you?
2: It's just the confidence in choices and like frames and pacing of the edit. Like a, a lot of times when I look at a film, I can tell right away if a director is confident in the choices that he or she has made. Mm -hmm. And you know sometimes people will describe that as a style, which is true. But I think it's just, this is how I want to tell the story. This is the approach. This is the visual strategy. This is how the pacing of the film is. This is what I want you to look at. And I'm forcing you to look at it. And then you can kind of take what you see on the screen and, and run with it. But I'm I have a perspective on it through the camera and I'm committed to it from the beginning of the film to the end. And I feel like that's what Shaka did really well. Like he he had a vision for it. He established it and was committed to it throughout the entire movie um, where other directors who might not be as confident or as skilled, you know, it could be one or the other or it could be both. Right. Um that consistency isn't there. That perspective isn't always there or it feels unsure. Um so th- yeah, that was that was one thing that I really liked about it. It's also a beautiful film. I think it's it's filmed really really well.
1: So you're not allowed to talk about what you're working on,
2: right? No, I can't do it yet. Is it exciting? Unfortunately. Is it exciting? I think it's exciting. So <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be biased. I think it's gonna be great. So Yeah.
1: Well, we'll look forward to talking about that when you can. Uh, Randy, I want to thank you for all your time this afternoon. It's been a fun show to do with you. Um, If people want to follow you on Twitter, where do they go?
2: Uh, Pamson, P-A-M-S-S-O-N. My website is the same, pamson.com. And for the Yankees fans out there, the blog is viewsfrom314feet.com. Randy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.